It's an amazing thing as we've been focusing on the resurrection of Christ, the fact that he's risen and as we've been singing and celebrating and reading his word and all of that, we're reminded of the many things that when Jesus from the cross said, it is finished, what it was all about, that death and hell and our sin and the evil powers that stand against us were all in principle defeated. They've not yet been completed. They're kind of, we're still as a church doing, I guess, what you could call a mop-up strategy in that regard. But one of the things I think of, there's so many individual benefits that come to Christ finishing his work of redemption on the cross, the grave, and the resurrection, and the ascension. But one of the things I think about is the fact that Jesus is risen and ascended to bring a family unto himself, that we are his family, that he is the head of his family. And so there are so many things, even in terms of this, I want to thank the family here at Spruce Creek. You know, it takes a lot of hard work to do a service such as that. And so you've got deacons back there with the chairs, you've got Carl and everybody with the music, Ann and Rory and Laura and Danny and the work they did with the praise song, the children that sang, the choir that sang, everything that goes on, the wonderful brunch we had, we had a tremendous time. Let's just say thank you to the many, many people who helped. I, for one, just praise the Lord when I see a church family come together, because to me it bears witness to the fact of what God has done in Jesus, and that he raised from the dead to have a family that he is the head of. The other thing I want to say is, if you're visiting here with us this morning, we love having you. We love having visitors be amongst us. We hope and pray that you find us warm, that you find us welcoming, that you find us friendly. We hope and pray that you would consider coming back, maybe even consider being a part of this family, a part of, consider what we're going to talk about here as I go through the text of scripture that's before us and we think about some of the ramifications, the implications of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, maybe be thinking about what that may mean to your life and whether or not that you want to be a part of this family. It was mentioned earlier, we had an announcement, but I'll mention it again. In two weeks, we're having a luncheon. We're having it specifically for you. We're inviting everyone. Everyone's included and a part of that luncheon, but our welcome team wants to have a lunch specifically. So on Sunday, April 10th, after the 11 o'clock service, what we want to do is share. This is a little bit of the flavor, so to speak, of Spruce Creek Church. These are what the ministries look like. This is what we offer. This is what we do to help us be a family, to help us be a community, you know, Jesus' mission, I have a good friend, you all have a good friend, Mike McClory likes to say to me, says, easy to understand, hard to apply. It's true. Very easy to understand. Jesus wants a family that loves him and loves each other. Now, how do we apply that? Ah, there's my segue to the message this morning. Something called resurrection power. And something, I, I like to try to do, what I try to do before the messages I preach is give you a question to think about, kind of a, a hook. Something that, you, that gets you thinking about, as we go through the details of the text of Scripture, how to apply it. My hook for this morning is I want you to ask yourself a question. And that is what, or maybe a better is, who are you living for? Every single one of us are living for somebody. Nobody's neutral. You live for somebody, you live for something. That doesn't mean it's a good thing versus a bad thing. Sometimes you've got to get the good-bad categories out of your mind. I will be honest with you, I love my job. I love my calling as a pastor, as a preacher, as a teacher. I love what I do. You guys are in trouble here because I could stay up here and talk to you for a long time. 
And so I'll give you a second promise. I love you as well, and I want you to enjoy your Easter dinner and your family and all that, so I promise I won't. But I could because I love my job that much. And when I get God, see, this is the intro. I haven't even started in the Word of God yet. Okay, so I love what I do, but it's possible that I could love my job and love my calling even more than I love Jesus. And then I've taken a good thing, and I've made it too important. I've made it too ultimate, because what we're called to love above all things and live for is God through his Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of his Spirit that's making real to us the implications and the ramifications of Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension to glory. And I don't want to leave that out. So... What are you living for? I want you to think about that question this morning as we go through the text this morning, which is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And i got to say a word, because for those of you who are part of Spruce Creek Church, you know I recently preached through the book of Ephesians. You might be, eyes might be getting white. You go, oh no, he's starting three years again. No. I just want to go back there. I'm reading verses 15 to 23, but there are a couple of verses in here that I want to focus on specifically verses 19 to 23, that I just want to hit home and look at a couple of the things specifically around the idea of what are we living for. So I want to read the whole so we get the context and then focus on these couple of verses. The writer of this is a man by the name of Apostle Paul, someone who encountered the risen Jesus and whose life was forever dramatically changed. And he writes to a congregation, they were in Ephesus, he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith, In the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We look at this text, and specifically as I focus on verse 19, see, Paul is praying three things here. And I only want us to look at one of this. This is a prayer of the apostle for that original church, and then God chose to have it written down, which means it's also a prayer. It's God's heart for us. And the prayer, he says this thing. He says that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. And you might be thinking to yourself, Do my, does my heart, that physical organ, have eyes? Sounds a little strange. And, of course, the physical organ does. What is he doing? He's saying... I want you to have a spiritual understanding, a spiritual sense, specifically of three things. Hope, the hope to which he's called you. Something he calls the glorious riches of his inheritance. Obviously, the church together inherits something. And then thirdly, this is the one I want us to focus on. He calls it the immeasurable greatness of his power that's moving in a direction toward us who believe. So you, if you believe... Some immeasurable power is at work right now towards you. And then he says that power is like the power that he worked in Christ. He says, here's how I want you to think about that power. It's like the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and then exalted him and seated him 
far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion at his right hand. Now, I don't know about you. I read that, and you know what word comes to my mind? Wow. I need the eyes of my heart enlightened so that this Jesus, who lived and died and rose and was ascended, becomes far more than just an idea, but becomes a living reality, the reality that he is that genuinely controls my life. So I want to ask two questions of the text. As you follow with me, let's look at two specific things from this text. First of all, what is the significance of this resurrection power? What difference does it make in our lives? And then, not only what difference does it make in our lives, but what is the scope of God's resurrection power? In other words, why can you be sure of his resurrection and how does it affect daily life? That's the significance question. And then once you ask that, what's the scope question? And to both of these, again, I'm going to repeat, what are you living for? Because so often I think we have a little bit of a, we shrink, we reduce Christianity. We take something that's very true, the true being, what am I saved from? Does Christianity mean being saved from? Of course it does. I'm saved from sin. I'm forgiven. I'm saved from guilt. I'm saved from shame. There are a lot of things I'm saved from, but we're reducing it if we go, that's all Christianity is about, because Christianity says, says you are saved for something, and you're saved for something that is absolutely huge. And I think if we understood how huge it was, we could be used in the world to change a whole lot in the world and more than we give credit for So what are you living for? What is the significance of God's resurrection power? And as I was preparing to give this sermon, I was doing some research, reading like I like to do, part of why I like my job. I like to read. So every week when you come, if you come back, you get quotes every week. I tend to do this. Okay? This is from a man I was reading, a historian, and he relays the following story. He talks about being in a lecture hall, and there was a communist lecturer giving a speech. And this communist lecturer paused before summing up his argument. His large audience listened intently and, to be quite honest, fearfully. And he says, therefore, there is no God. Jesus Christ never existed. There's no such thing as a Holy Spirit. And this thing called church, it is nothing but an oppressive institution. And anyway, it's out of date and irrelevant. The future belongs to the state and the state is in the hands of the party. And, of course, he's talking about the Communist Party. He was about to sit down when an old priest, someone sitting near the front of the audience, could barely stand up. He gets up near the front, he stands up, and he says to the lecturer, Sir, may I say a couple of words, he asks. And, of course, the person relaying the story says, well, it's three in English, but two in Russian, the language he was speaking. The lecturer, not sure what to do, but wanting to honor this feeble old man, wanting to be polite, but still rather contemptuous and disdainful, gives in and says okay and gives him permission. The old priest turns, looks out over the crowd and shouts, Christ is risen! To which, do you know it? What did the crowd respond? (laughs) Amen. And the old priest says they have been saying that at Easter for well over a thousand years. Why should they stop now? And the writer adds, he says, they're not whistling in the dark. The gospel message of Easter is the complete and total answer to tyranny. 
And the same writer says it's impossible to explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose from the dead. He says, how do we know? How, why can we be sure of the historical truth, the historical reliability of the resurrection? And remember, I said he's a historian. He says, well, look at the facts. He says, something happened that turned Jesus' followers. Those men that originally followed him and did things like denied him, betrayed him, fled. When he was going to the cross, they took off. They ran home. And he says, something happened that turned them from frightened, defeated people into apostles. And he says, it's inexplicable otherwise. He says, if we look at history, and remember I said this is a historical illustration, he says, we know several other Jewish roots that within a hundred years or so on the side of Jesus that either tried a movement, a messianic movement, a prophetic movement, there are movements that end with the founder, much like Jesus, being killed. And he writes, he says, when that happens, you now have a choice. Either you find another leader or you give up the movement. You do not say oh, our leader's been raised from the dead and now he's still our leader because that makes no sense. But he goes, that's exactly what the early Christians did. And what did it result in? The rise of the early church. Ultimately, you know what it resulted in? You and I, and in churches all over the globe today, you might say how weak you think the church is. There is a witness going up worldwide today that Jesus is not only risen, he's ascended, he is alive, and he is present in our midst right this minute. And we are the proof of Jesus' resurrection. Amen. Now, what significance does it have in our lives? Let's try to bring this home a little bit to our day-to-day -day lives. Remember I said Paul is praying that our hearts are melted that there's a sense, this Jesus is alive, that means he is not an idea. Don't leave this place, go to dinner, and then make him irrelevant and on the sidelines of your life. Paul is praying this prayer that our hearts would be melted, seared with a spiritual reality. The reality of what he calls the immeasurable. You can't take out a tape measure and measure the greatness of his power. His power that is at work right this second towards your life. What are you struggling with right now? Are you struggling with loneliness? Are you struggling with boredom? Are you struggling with addiction? Are you struggling with isolation? Are you struggling with guilt or shame? Resurrection power is at work. You're here, not by accident. The living God of the universe has ordained and called you to be here this very moment, and his power is at work. Have the integrity to go, hmm, I wonder what God could be up to in my life. Maybe I should at least ask the question, what am I living for? Maybe this God could actually be for me. When it looks like the whole world is against me, maybe this God could really be for me. There's a writer, and he writes, he says, we could cope. The world could cope with a Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside his disciples' minds and hearts. What the world cannot cope with, though, is a Jesus who comes out of the tomb. And I want you to recognize, he didn't go back inside. He's still out of the tomb. Who then inaugurates God's new creation right in the middle of the old one. See, he came out of the tomb, and where is he now? He's seated at the right hand of God, and what is he doing? He is filling all in all. That's what verse 23 is, and don't mistake the, those words at the end. He's filling all in all, which means we need to ask our 
What, you fill something, okay? You go home, you get, have an empty glass, you want to fill it with southern sweet tea, right? <laughs> we all love southern sweet tea. You want to, you're filling it with something. The text begs us to ask the question, what is Jesus in his present ministry now filling the earth well with? The text tells us he's filling it with his church because he says he's exalted, he's raised far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And he says he does all this for the sake he's head over all things for the church. And then there's that little comma, the church, the fullness of him. So that's what we are. Do you realize we are the presence of Christ on the earth? We are the fullness of Christ on the earth who is right now, what is he doing? Filling the earth with the church. He is, we are the fullness of him who is filling all in all with the church. So again, what does that mean? What's the point of that? What are the implications of that? Vic Headley read a passage of scripture earlier in the, in the text. And you realize I put these things together on purpose? You didn't know I did that, did you? There's a method to my madness. In Colossians 1, when it says he's the image of the invisible God, it says something else, the firstborn over all creation. Let's recognize what that doesn't mean. Jesus always was. He's the alpha and the omega, as Vic rightly said. He was, he is, and he is to come self-existent. There was never a time when he wasn't. So he wasn't born in the, what we think of the born sense. So what does it mean, firstborn over all creation? It means he is far above all rule, supreme, sovereign, superior, and he is the first of what? The new creation. Andrew quoted in his prayer, the first fruits of a new creation. The new world that we think of as in the future when God raised Jesus from the dead, he took that future and he launched it into the present. He moved it and he began it in the present. And then he says, I have a toolbox. Like many of you, I don't. I'm not a mechanic at all. I have golf clubs in my garage. Most of you all have toolboxes in your garage. Okay, we have toolboxes with jigsaws and hammers. And See, God has a mission. He's creating the world to be his home. He's making the world his kingdom. New creation has begun. And he has a toolbox for the job of building that new creation, filling it with things that he loves, like love and generosity, graciousness and forgiveness, justice and beauty, death, life that will defeat death, light that will defeat darkness, purity and wholeness that will defeat fragmentation and alienation. Justice that will defeat injustice and beauty that will defeat ugliness. And do you want to know what the toolbox is for that new creation project? It's the church. So the significance of Christ's resurrection, and if you're in Christ, he was raised so that, and this is what we read out of Romans earlier, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life, being God's... He's launched a new creation project, his mission, building love, building justice, building spirituality, building relationship, and he has a church for his mission. That's why the application is, what are you living for? Listen very carefully to this statement. Christianity is not about escape from the world. 
Our hope when we die is not to escape from the world. As one writer put it, the point of following Jesus isn't simply so that we can be sure of going to a better place than this after we die. He says, yes, our future beyond death is enormously important, but the nature of the Christian hope is such that it plays back into the present life. He says, we're called here and now to be instruments. That's the, what I'm saying, his toolbox. Instruments of God's new creation. The world put to rights which has already been launched in Jesus. That's what it means. He's the firstborn. We're the re- and the first fruits. we're the rest of the flock. We're the rest of the crop. He's the first part of the harvest, and we're the rest. So he's launched this in Jesus, and of which Jesus' followers are supposed to be not simply the recipients. We don't sit back and say, thank you, Jesus. It was so nice of you to die and be raised for me that I can sit back and do whatever I want through this life. No, we are supposed to be the agents of this project, the agents. And it's the resurrection that gives us this power. That's why Paul, in another one of his letters, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there were many in this church, another place, Corinth, where they were doubting the reality of the resurrection. And Paul says, if it's in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. If it is for this 80, 90, I'll give you 120, that's what God gives you, years, and that's it for your hope, Listen to what the Apostle's point. He says, we're most to be pitied. And at the end of the passage, chapter 15, he gives this resounding declaration of the victory of Jesus. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that's good enough for me to stop there. If I were Paul, I'd be... I just thumbed my nose at death. Ah, we're done. This is great. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? I'm ready to go have lunch. But Paul doesn't stop. He puts in these magical words, and language is important. He says, therefore. You know what that means to the readers? That means wake up and pay attention. That means pay attention because what I told you is the principle. Now I'm going to say, here's here's the significance in your life. What are you living for? Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now put these two paths. Paul prays in Ephesians that the eyes of your heart would be melted, would have understanding to know the immeasurable greatness of his power that is at work towards you. To do what? To always abound in the work of the Lord, doing what? Building his new world. Building the kingdom of God. As again, another writer says, this all has to do with new creation. We are called to be part of the project of the new creation in the work that we do. He writes, the resurrection means that the, we work Now, God is somehow weaving together. He's making this earth, it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, transformed. Do I know fully what that will look like? No. But the New Testament tells us there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we are now working for that new world that God has begun in Christ. That means our lives, that means how you are in your marriages, how you are as a single person, how you are in your families, how you are at work, everything you do 
represents Christ and is building for Christ's new world. God is weaving together everything you do. It has meaning. That's why he says always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your hope is not to escape this world, but to colonize it with the life of heaven. That's why the very center of the Lord's prayer was thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Not escaping. On earth as in heaven. Christianity is so much more and so much bigger than just what am I saved from. I think we could actually have much more of an evangelistic message if we offered the world the message, do you know what you could be saved for? Wouldn't you like to be saved for being God's instruments in making this earth his home, building it as a world of justice and a world of peace and a world of relationships and a world of true connection with God? a world of true love, a world of true hope, a world of true beauty. This music, the art, everything we heard was a signpost. Can you not wait to hear what Danny and Laura and Rory and Ann and the children and the choir all sound like when they're glorified and exalted? They were wonderful. Can you not? This beauty all come together. This is what we're working for now. What are you living for? the significance of God's resurrection power. And then just real briefly, the scope. Verses 21 to 23 when he says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age. When he says not only in this age, he means it is in this age, just not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And then he's saying he put all things under his feet. So where is Jesus now? He's raised to the right hand of the Father And everything's under his feet, and he's head over all things to the church, to you and I, which is what his body, the presence of him in the earth, and the presence of him means the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is, I mean, what an incredible passage talking about the dominion, the sovereignty, the superiority, the preeminence, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That means whatever else it means to be a Christian, before anything else, Jesus is our king. And what do you do with a king? King is not a democratic republic. A king is not saying, you know, I would love for it to be the fact, Jeff, let me, let me get your opinion. Can you imagine if you, Jeff, let me get your opinion on this matter. Why don't you tell me what you think? Kings don't do that. You know what kings do? They say, thy will be done. And do you know what subjects do? They say, yes, sir, and they do it. Now, we have a king who's very different than I think we tend to think of him because we tend to think of a king who's nothing more than a boss, nothing more than arbitrary, nothing more. But you have a king whose heart is filled with love. You have a king who gave his life. Greater love has no one than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. You have a king who first and foremost took his own medicine. And even before he enacted justice in the world, you know what he did? He took his own justice. Because he took upon himself all the evil, all the injustice, all the corruption, all the wickedness that comes from us, that we bring. Jesus said, let it land on me. So that he could be a king towards you who's benevolent and gracious and forgiving 
and kind and who only has your best interests at heart. The only way you will yield him his heart, yes, he wants you to yield allegiance to him, but the only way you will do that is if you trust him to have your best interests at heart. And the only way you will trust him is if you look at what led to the resurrection, which was the cross, which was him drinking his own medicine, taking his own medicine, letting all of the evil of mankind fall upon himself. This has unbelievable, incredible ramifications for our discipleship. See, what does it mean to follow Jesus? The one who's the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. The Lamb of God slain, the Lion of Judah raised. My favorite illustration is the one given by Tim Keller. I've shared it with you before, but it's just a visual picture of what it means to follow Jesus. He says, imagine that the distance from the earth to the sun, okay? Visualize this. That distance is, what, 92, 93 million miles? He says, imagine that's the thickness of this one piece of paper. So right there represents 92 million miles. And he says, then the distance from the earth to the nearest star alone would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. That's pretty high. He says, then the diameter of just our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is only a single speck, one of an infinite number of galaxies just in this part of the universe that we can see. He says, if, as the Bible says, Jesus Christ holds all that together with just a word of his power. If you don't believe me, look that up in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, by the way. He holds all of that together with simply the breath of his power. Is that the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? (laughs) Is that the person you ask into your life to say, I'm driving the car, thanks Jesus for being my co-pilot. Yeah, you're my GPS, if you turn me to left, I'll take it into consideration. How absurd. He says, if you're to relate to such a person, he will either be the absolute Lord of your life or he's nothing at all. And I'm inviting you this morning. Maybe he has you here this morning because he's calling you to, be, to accept and receive and embrace him as the Lord of your life. And if you want to know how to do that, you could speak to myself, Andrew, one of the elders. We would love to talk to you about that. But all of this supremacy, all of this authority, all of this goodness, all of this benevolence, all of this, what is it for? It is for the sake of the church, his body, his fullness. You know what you are? You know what we are? We're the fullness of Jesus in the world today. We represent Jesus in the world today. And that's our purpose, to be the fullness of Christ in the world. That is to represent Christ in the world. To be for the world what Jesus was for the world. You know, there was a time, John chapter 20, verse 21 records this. This is after Jesus was raised from the dead and before his exaltation. He was speaking to his disciples, his followers. And he said to his followers right before his ascension, he says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Do you understand what that means? 
that we are for the world what Jesus was for the world. We're the fullness, the representative. We're certainly not Christ, but we represent Christ. We point people to Christ. We are the identity of the church. Why is the welcome ministry? Why is what we do in worship? Why is what we do in teaching so important? Because we are sent into the world as the Father sent Jesus. Jesus sends us. Our identity is to be for the world what Jesus was for the world. I don't know about you, but I think that has a lot of meaning and purpose and significance. What are you living for? Father, I pray, as Paul prayed, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. Whether it's for the first time, or whether, like at the church at Ephesus, we were filled with many, many believers. But we needed to go from... Jesus, you just simply being an idea to having our hearts melted with spiritual understanding that we would know, among other things, what is the immeasurable greatness of your power. Your power to do what? Your power to fill the earth with your body, the church. So that, Father, as you sent Jesus, Jesus now sends us. So I pray for Spruce Creek Church, but I pray for the church universal to live the resurrection and to live sent into the world. As you've begun your new creation project, using us in Jesus' name, amen.